0: On behalf of RBCS, welcome to today's webinar on test estimation. I am Rex Black, President of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting and outsourcing services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of a bunch of books on software testing including the bestseller, Managing the Testing Process. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. A big thank you to Vicki Sasser for reviewing the materials for PDU st- status and for making valuable suggestions. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. Uh, before we start the presentation, uh, a couple housekeeping notes. Um, Feel free to submit your questions at any time, but please note that I only answer them at the end. Uh, There is no need to ask for presentation copies. The presentation is on the web. Go to rbcs-us.com. Go to the Resources tab in the upper middle of the page, and from there, navigate to the Basic Library, and you will find the slides there. By attending this webinar, you have automatically been registered for the free e-learning drawing. Check your email over the next couple days and watch that spam filter. Uh, finally, you will notice that my voice sounds kind of odd. Um, that's because I have uh, a head cold. Um, I will be periodically uh, muting myself to avoid sneezing and coughing into your ears. we uh, will do, my, do the best I can to avoid doing that. As far as the scratchiness of my voice, I'm afraid that I cannot fix. I will periodically be treating it with iced coffee and water and so forth, but uh, uh, I'm afraid it's, it's not going to be a whole lot of fun to listen to. I hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we're a not just-for-profit company. So, um, what are we trying to do here with test estimation? Um, Well, we're trying to figure out things like how many testers do we need? How many tests do we need? How many bugs will we find? How long will testing take? Um, These are things that uh, we want to get answers to. Now, uh, what is a good estimate um, I mean anybody can you, can you can estimate anybody can make up numbers I can make up numbers to uh, uh, you know go with each one of those questions I just asked but is that a good estimate um, I think we all have a, a sort of a sense that 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 is not if the numbers are purely made up but okay what does actually constitute a good estimate well here's what I would say a good estimate is one that um, accurately predicts the future. Um, so we say, you know, it's going to take this many testers to get through the testing. Then that's how many we needed. If we say it's going to take this many tests, that's how many we needed. Um, the 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 uh, prediction comes true within some you know degree of accuracy. Obviously, you know, if you you predict somewhere in the order of ten thousand tests and you end up having to create and execute 9,500 tests. that's probably pretty good accuracy. That's probably good enough. Um, You know, plus minus 5% uh, for an estimate uh, is is pretty good. So that's what I'm talking about, accuracy. And it also should be useful as a guide um, in the sense that we we can, it lays out a path for us that we can follow, Um, whether this guide be um, a, you know in the form of burn-down charts uh, work breakdown structures whatever whatever it is that we're using the estimation process should be one that uh, allows us as the project proceeds to know are we on track and if we're not on track what would be some smart things to do uh, from a uh, course correction point of view um, now you also want an estimate to be uh, realistic so it shouldn't be missing any tasks um, any tasks that have to be carried out, um, we're talking here specifically about testing tasks, but, of course, this, this applies to, um, to any, any kind of tasks, uh, including development tasks. Any tasks that need to be carried out should be included. Uh, also, uh, risks. Uh, now, here I'm talking about project risks, risks that could affect our ability to carry out the uh, tasks um, and the project as planned. We need to understand what those risks are and manage those appropriately, put appropriate mitigation and contingency um, steps in in place. And uh, the uh, uh, estimate needs to be actionable to be good. By actionable, I mean that we know who's going to do the work. There's assignment of people. There are resources. There are dependencies. We know what those dependencies are, and we're planning to deal with those dependencies. So it's not like we're going to get to a situation where it's time to run some task and we go, oh, no, um, you know, we can't do that. Now, um, there are basically three uh, parts to the estimation process. Um, One is asking experts and owners. Ask the people who are actually going to do the work. Uh, Ask people who have done the work before. Uh, This is... uh, the most common um, and uh, excuse me goes by various names um, which we'll see and talk about um, now another approach which should be included in your estimation process is the use of uh, metrics and industry averages ideally uh, historical metrics from uh, similar past projects that you've been involved with uh, failing that and then at least looking at industry averages and saying you know that's so what we're proposing makes sense. Um, and then finally, there's a negotiation piece. Um, it is often the case that, uh, you know, as, as the old saying goes, people's eyes are bigger than their stomach. Um, they, they, they serve themselves more than they can eat. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Mythical Man M- Month book by Fred Brooks um, was uh Certainly didn't create the phrase, but but aptly used the phrase of trying to put 10 pounds in a 20 pound bucket or excuse me, 20 pounds in a 10 pound bucket. Sorry. Um, And that kind of thing goes on all the time in uh, software engineering, especially, uh, including other fields but software engineering, particularly. You have to you have to think about the negotiation of getting to uh, something that we can all agree on as uh, part of this estimation process. And in fact, I want to start with that because that's, that's probably one of the most neglected parts, but it's the part that is when, when it's neglected and when it's not uh, managed carefully is uh, going to lead to, uh, to the downfall of any estimate, uh, no matter how um, technically proficient you are from a project management point of view at creating estimates. If you can't handle the negotiation part properly, um, then you are, are not going to uh, uh, achieve a good estimate. Now, focusing on um, uh, testing in particular, we're t- talking about this negotiation piece. Um, it's important to understand that that uh, disagreements can easily arise out of mismatched expectations. um it can be as, as much about a mismatch of expectations as about facts uh, because, if, if, in fact, if you're not on the same sort of set of expectations to start with, you're probably looking at a different set of facts. So, of course, you're not going to be uh, reaching an agreement. So, let's talk about what different expectations we could have uh, that would be workable um, in reaching an agreement about uh, test estimate and uh, what expectation would be toxic. Another nose blow there. Um, um, Okay, so the first three expectations on the list here are expectations that if they are mutually held by all of the uh, managers and stakeholders involved in discussing the test estimate, uh, will allow us to come up with an estimate that is a good estimate. Um, And the last one is one that that creates a uh, an impossible scenario. So um, the first one is that you're going to cover the test basis completely now when I say test basis here I'm referring to you know those things that your tests are based on which would include the requirements would not uh, ideally would not just be the requirements Um, if you find that statement a little bit mystifying and you're like what else could I possibly be basing tests on besides the requirements I would refer you to the recorded webinar that I did on uh, dimensions of uh, test coverage uh, I think it was like a year or two ago, it's posted out on the digital library on the RBCS website. In that webinar, I talk about all the things that could conceivably be part of your test basis. Now, obviously, you have to have agreement on what the test basis is in order to be agreed on what it would mean to cover the test basis completely. So I'm assuming here that we, we have an agreement set from, as a starting point about what the test basis is. first assumption there is that you're going to test everything completely, and again, I'm assuming that you have some way of having a discussion with people about what completely means, but that's their expectation, is you're going to test um, everything that's on that test basis, uh, set of documents and inputs and so forth, and uh, it's going to cost what it costs. It's going to take whatever amount of time it takes. Some of you might be listening to this and think, be thinking, (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a nice life. That's some fantasy land that Rex is living in there. But there are actually organizations where this, this is the expectation. Um, if you are, for example, in, a, in an FDA-regulated environment, FDA stands for Food and Drug Administration, for those of you outside the United States. The FDA has uh, regulations that uh, apply to medical devices and medical software um, and uh, you have to satisfy those regulations. Those regulations are pretty strict in terms of coverage of your test basis. Uh, you don't satisfy those, and an auditor audits you uh, before you try to release your device, you're not, you're not releasing it. You fail, boom, done, game over, you know, thanks for playing. Um, so, you know, test managers in those scenarios have uh, one argument taken off the table completely because that that first expectation is the one that's going to prevail suppose that you're not in a regulated environment and there are some constraints one expectation that I have seen is that uh, you're you're to do as much testing as you possibly can within the schedule constraints now within those schedule constraints cost is not an issue now, of course, I mean, co- ultimately cost is an issue, but there's only so much money you can spend in a finite period of time. But you're not going to be cost constrained. You're going to be schedule constrained. If any of you uh, have been around as long um, or you know, close to as long as I have, <laughs> I was around way before the Y2K stuff, but I was around for the Y2K stuff in the software industry, been in the software industry since 1983. Um uh, for those of you who were, were working on software projects in the, in the late 90s and involved Y2K conversion, you, you might be familiar with this particular expectation, which is, you know, we're going to throw a lot of money at making sure that our IT systems don't um, go to hell in a handbasket when, uh, you know, the clock strikes midnight. Uh, but the clock's going to strike midnight when it does. The project's going to be over when the project's over. So that's... Um, That's something that happens uh, on on conversion projects sometimes is, you know, spend as much as we can uh, to get as close as we can to, uh, you know, complete, but understand that we are constrained. Um, Now, the more typical reasonable expectation is the third one on this list, which is you're going to do as much testing as you can within schedule and cost constraints. So there's some limit on how long the project can go, and there's some limit on how much it can cost. Um, and uh, that's you know that's probably the more uh, the more typical one um, if you are working in an agile team for example um, the assumption is that the, the sprint or iteration whatever it's called uh, in your implementation of agile is going to end when it's going to end. and since you are probably constrained in terms of the number of people you have and the resources that you have on any given sprint than your cost constraint too. So it's basically, you know, do as much testing as you can um, within that, uh, that set of constraints. Um, and all of these are perfectly workable, these three, as long as we agree. Um, it's the fourth one that's going to get you in trouble, which is where people assume that they can constrain schedule, constrain budget, constrain the features. In other words, that this we're going to release this set of features on this date This is how many people and how much money we're going to have available. And, by the way, it has to have perfect quality. You have to have found every single bug. And this is what I call breaking the iron triangle assumption. Um, So the iron box and triangle uh, here, if you think about this process. um, um, So (coughs) getting the pointer up here the spotlight up a lot of times you know the first thing that we're going to do is define a set of features um, now in agile this is of course it's, it's the other way around the schedule is actually what comes first the, you know we, we predetermined the number of iterations that we're going to have and then we we select the features that we think will fit within that um, inter- that set of iteration or that's that iteration excuse me um, you know iteration by iteration but either way you get the point that the features and the schedule will be defined, either one first, then the other, depending on whether we're Agile or Waterfall. Um, and then um, we're able to say, okay, well, you know, are there cost implications? Do we need new resources, uh, uh, bringing in outside people, perhaps, um, outside tools? Um, so now we're making a decision about cost. Notice that. What's happening here is you can think of the features as as defining the box and then we we draw a line for the schedule and we draw a line connected to the schedule for the cost. And basically any given software process that exists at any given point in time will have a certain quality capability. It's going to have a characteristic quality capability. Now, that will vary. To some extent, you will see variability in the process. The less mature the process is, the more variability you will get. But it's going to have a characteristic quality capability. So if you just say, you know, we are going to constrain features, constrain schedule, constrain cost, you have constrained quality. You can accept that or not. Um, A mature way of thinking about it is to accept that that's a constraint. And if that level of quality is not acceptable, then you would iterate. Uh, in Agile, you would say, well, if we don't have time to test all of these user stories in this period of time, which of them will we remove, right? In Waterfall, you might say, well, you know, we can either de-scope um, or we can extend the testing schedule. But something has to give there. And any, uh, any attempt to just say, we're going to predefine feature schedule and cost, and oh, by the way, you can't release any defects to the customers, um, you know, this is is management by exhortation. Um, this is one of uh, uh, Deming's um, hobgoblins. If you uh, if you if you've read uh, Deming, W.E. Deming. Uh, if you if you haven't read Deming and you're in the testing business, then uh, go read Deming. Um, you know, you should be familiar with his his concepts um, about quality because they're they're important, just as uh, say, say, Juran is. But, yeah, management by exhortation, management by fear, by pressure. Um, uh, Sometimes this is referred to as theory X management, which says that uh, um, the only way to get the maximum output out of your workers is just to press the hell out of them and, um, you know, subject them to ridiculous expectations in the hope that in their desperate uh, attempt to achieve the impossible, they'll achieve the unlikely. It's based on the assumption that people are fundamentally lazy and don't care, um, which uh, thankfully has not been my experience. If if you're working in an organization where people are lazy and don't care, which, you know, I think of all the projects that I've been on, I can only think of one where I would have actually characterized a majority of the team that way in my 30-plus years in this business. Um, If you're working on a team like that, what you need to do is find someplace else to work (laughs) because – The thing is that no amount of Theory X management will ever get that team to succeed. So what you want to be working with is is a a form of what's called Theory Y management, which if if you've read, uh, uh, say, uh, Tom DeMarco and Tim Lister's books like Peopleware and so forth, that's pretty reflective of Theory Y um, management. Um, uh, uh, Tom Peters the guy who wrote *In Search of Excellence* um, is another guy who's, who talks a lot about, about theory Y management. Theory Y management basically says people are motivated and they want to accomplish good things. Um, we need—they need managers to give them the resources and uh, clear obstacles from their way. Okay, so uh, that's a—that's a lot about the human. Um, elements of this and you might be thinking hmm, maybe that's too much about the human element but you know in in my years of of working as a consultant and as a test manager and so forth I've come to conclude that the uh, uh, human element is um, uh, quite uh, quite important in this in, in this grand scheme of things Okay, so now let's talk about the technical side of it for the rest of this discussion. Um, by the way, I had a report of poor audio quality, um, but it was only from one person. Um, I'm assuming that that person's just having a, a, a connection issue. But if a lot of you are having issues with audio quality, uh, um, you know, do let me know, and uh, we'll we'll escalate that up to. Uh, our our friends at, uh, at Citrix, <laughs> our good friends, who always love to hear from us when we complain about <laughs> when we complain about uh, the uh, problems that we have. They're going to have a hard time topping the the one that happened last month, where a bunch of you were unable to get even logged into the uh, session. Um, Okay, so let's let's talk about the uh, the technical uh, elements of this. Um, So if we're talking about a traditional life cycle, um, a sequential or V model life cycle, then um, usually what you're going to do for your estimation is some form of a work breakdown structure. Now, a work breakdown structure is a hierarchical decomposition of a project, any project, into its uh, major stages and from there into uh, activities and then ultimately down to discrete uh, tasks. So uh, you could go various ways about doing this decomposition. I've used these five stages shown here on a lot of schedules. Um, And... um, but uh, you can also use, say, the fundamental test process uh, as a way of doing that, if you're familiar with the ISTQB fundamental test process. Uh, I, I think, you know, the, the important thing is that you start with a structure that is going to make sure that you don't leave anything out. Uh, as long as it works for you and not missing any tasks, then, then you know, that's, that's fine. Um, now, when you break down to the tasks... Um, what you, One of the things you want to do is, you know, follow project management best practices, um, which would include things like getting tasks down to the one to two-day, uh, maybe three days uh, duration, um, and um, having a single person assigned to the task. So there's a single owner, so you don't have accountability issues. Uh, having the task produce a deliverable is also a good uh, practice. Uh, not all tasks will, but it's, uh, you know, ideally there would be a deliverable that can be reviewed so that we can say, yes, that task was indeed done. Now, again, a key thing here too is, you know, not uh, to, forget, to forget anything. So, um, you know, part of this is, is the framework that you use. Um, another part is um, uh, what I refer to as thinking forward and thinking backward. So um, thinking forward and thinking backward is not the same as thinking forward and backward thinking. I'm encouraging backward thinking, but thinking forward is you're sitting there, you know, you're you're creating your estimate and you're going, okay, I've worked on test projects before, so typically this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And so you're able to kind of go through in your mind, you know, just replay the movie basically of, well, you know, what are the kinds of things that have happened on previous projects? Uh, Obviously, the first time you create a test estimate, this is not going to be very easy to do um, because you're speculating, but hopefully you've got someone available who can help you with that. Um, Of course, if you're creating a test estimate, it's, at least not going to be the first time you worked on a test project. So hopefully you can remember the kinds of things that have gone on on past projects. Uh, But, you know, after a while, and the more you do it, the more, the the more experience you have and the more you're able to go, Oh yeah, I'm going to add this and do this. And then we do this. Now the thinking backward, what is the, the thinking backward? Um, What I'm saying, suggesting here is that um, if you are doing risk-based testing, which I would encourage you to do, at this point in time, whether you're doing a traditional life cycle or an agile life cycle, you should have gone through a risk analysis. So based on that risk analysis, you should have a pretty good idea of what you're going to test and how much. Um, so the, you should be able to think through, all right, it, during test execution, what are the things that I'm going to need to be able to test? Uh, what are the test suites that I'm going to need? This and this and this. You should be able to say, okay, I'm a functional test suite, performance, error handling, reliability, usability, localization, you know, whatever it is that you came up with. So you know what those test suites are, and then you know how much risk was associated with those areas. So you should be able to say, yeah, you know, I think this is like this many days, and this is this many days. Um, and, of course, this, the, we're going to come back to this in a bit because this is—is is, you're probably having a whole lot of thoughts pop up in your head like, well, how many days it takes to execute those tests depends on how many bugs I find, right? Yeah, we'll come back to that. But at least you can say to define or to run the, the test once would take this long, right? So you got that idea and then you go, all right, um, now, what would I need to develop to run these tests? You have to create the test. You might have to create data. How about environments? Do you need to set up an environment if you're doing performance testing? Uh, Staffing, maybe you don't have anybody qualified to do a particular kind of test, so you're going to uh, uh, bring in a contractor or consultant to do that. You might even have to write a whole separate plan, a performance test plan. So that's what I'm talking about thinking backward. You're basically looking at what your risk analysis tells you you need to test and you're thinking through all of the things that you would need to do in order to get to the point where you could, you could run those tests. Now in, in agile, um, what's going to happen is, uh, uh, a little different because, um, you're going to have an overall <clears throat> test strategy, um, that's been defined. Um, and, and this is, it should be in place, uh, uh, at the point of release planning. Now, you're not going to know during the release planning uh, exactly where every user story is going to go and they won't have exact sizing and so forth. So it's during the iteration planning at the beginning of each sprint or iteration where you're going to um, estimate your your features or user stories. Um, And um, a lot of times you'll be using um, a technique uh, referred to as planning poker or might not be referred to as planning poker, but it is. Uh, something like it. Uh, If you're not familiar uh, with that I'm going to describe it in just a minute. So we're going to come up with the the number of story points which is just basically a measure excuse me measure uh, effort uh, associated with creating and testing that user story. And when you're doing when you're assigning the test effort to the user story you should be thinking about the risk level. Um, Now You want to make sure that um, you have good team involvement and planning poker is supposed to be a team, a team effort. Now, in the case of a uh, creating a work breakdown structure, um, a lot of times the way that will happen is that you'll create the work breakdown structure first and then you'll go and have a team estimation session, say, with your test team. So it's still a a, a collaborative effort. You want to make sure that you do have that collaboration regardless of the life cycle. Again, so that you don't miss anything and so that you don't underestimate things. Now in Agile, um, it is important that we uh, um, do the estimation properly, including the test estimation, because otherwise what's going to happen, because we are time bound, is you're going to get to the end of a sprint or iteration And um, the testing's not going to be done, at least not done to the the point that it really should be. Um, And so a a user story might be claimed as complete and it's released and, you know, we go, oh, look, our velocity is this, you know, 30 story points per iteration or what have you. Um, Well, (laughs) okay but you didn't actually finish all the testing. So when those under-tested user stories get out there and people start actually using them, they find bugs in them, right? So your velocity isn't actually meaningful because you weren't really done. And I've, I've seen this happen in organizations that are following Agile. It's not unusual that the testing just basically gets curtailed at the end of the last day of the iteration. Declare victory and go home, as the saying goes. Um, which then, you know, it's like, wow, what a surprise. The user stories that we were testing at the end of the iteration are always the ones that people have the most trouble with after we release them. Okay, so the uh, planning poker. <clears throat> Agile has a lot of um, instances of uh, uh, what, what would be referred to in biblical uh, terms as uh, old wine and new skins. Uh, basically rebranding of existing best practices under new names Uh, if you're a cynical old guy like me you say that people do that because you can make more money by rebranding something under your own brand name and making it sound like you made it up rather than just saying here's a best practice that has been proven for 60 or 70 years that um, I like to use you know so uh, again, being that, that cynical, I'm, I'm so cynical that I cut myself off from that, so I don't, like, rebrand things under my own name, and so maybe I'm missing a boat. But uh, planning poker is just a new name for a technique that's been around since World War II called Delphic Oracle technique. And uh, what you do in the Delphic Oracle technique or in planning poker is that you ask uh, people, it's a, it's a group estimation effort, effort You ask people to estimate how long something is going to take, but they don't reveal their estimate to everybody when they come up with it. They write it down um, or pick a card or or what have you. There's a number of ways of doing this, but you you basically come up with your estimate on your own and then you have a reveal um, at where you everybody reveals their estimate to everybody else. And then the high and the low estimators are supposed to explain their reasoning. Um, Now, you might say, what what exactly is that whole hide the number and then reveal it all at once thing about? Well, that's to avoid a problem called anchoring. Um, Anchoring uh, anchoring is where you, in a conversation, people tend to react to the last thing that was said, or in this case, the first thing that was said. So if, if, if people blurt out their numbers, Like, we're sitting in an estimation session, and we're looking at uh, developing some uh, little uh, script that's going to allow us to automatically test an API. And I, as a test manager, ask, how long is that going to take? And somebody says, I can do that in two days. Boom. Now everybody is anchored to that two days. Everybody's reacting to that. You know, now, there are situations where you absolutely want to take advantage of anchoring, right, if you're in a – an auction. I mean, the whole reason that an auction is going to work is because of, of anchoring and people, you know, reacting to each other's uh, bids. Um, but that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to come up with with a truthful figure for how long it's going to take. So, what you do is you allow everybody to come up with their number by themselves, and then we react to each other's numbers all all by themselves. Uh, you know, on, on each each one in in consideration, basically. Um, if you're in the United States and you're watching the exceptionally dispiriting coverage of our upcoming presidential election, you will be quite familiar with the, uh, the concept of, of, anchoring and, and how it works, um, and how it can be, uh, uh, detrimental to a, uh, fact-focused debate about, um, about any, any given topic, um, now, there needs to be a limit on the discussion here, so usually what you have is uh, um, the uh, um, rule of, of repeat at most twice. So, so what I do is I have the high and the low estimator explain their numbers, and then uh, we re-estimate. Again, same same process as before without, uh, without revealing it um, until everybody's ready to reveal their estimates. And then, you know, again, if we don't have agreement, try it one more time. But it's basically, you know, three is a charm one way or the other. Uh, classic uh, Delphic Oracle would say that you use uh, the average if you don't get agreement on that uh, third try. Um, other people would say that you should use a mode or median value. Um, you know, I, I think that's there, there are a number of ways of, of uh, splitting the difference there. Um, Usually what I see in these this kind of sessions is that it just kind of gets it gets worked out, it gets negotiated out. Point technique. Um, this is not something I would expect to see used in an agile environment just because it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of a heavyweight technique to use when you're talking about a small team that's trying to figure out what they're going to do in the next two to four weeks. But in the three-point uh, technique, uh, basically, what you're going to do is instead of having a single estimate uh, estimate for for uh, each task, you have three estimates. That's hence three point: best case, worst case, and expected case. And in the expected case is what's actually used for the estimate. Uh, but what you do is you you run the estimate, your work breakdown structure. You put Put the best case and the worst case numbers in, and you look at how big the variance is in, the, in terms of the end date and the effort. Um, and the bigger that variance is, the less uh, less precise, less accurate your estimate is. Now, there's a concept called the cone of uncertainty that I don't really have time to get into here in this uh, discussion, but uh, you can do a, a Google search on that. It's, it's something that uh, Steve McConnell has written about. And basically, the three-point technique can be good at figuring out where where exactly you are in the the cone of uncertainty. Um, So, you know, if you're doing a a longer project following a uh, a sequential lifecycle model or one of the traditional iterative models like rapid application development, then you might use a three-point technique or the combined uh, uh, Delphic Oracle and three-point technique, which is called the wideband. Okay, so that's basically about extracting the, you know, individual wisdom from people Um, and it's, it's important. Um, Now, another thing that you need to do when, when you're doing an estimate, and this is true uh, on any uh, project, Agile or uh, sequential, is figure out what your dependencies are. Now, Basically, the way you're going to do this is you're going to, you're going to go through and look at uh, um, the tasks that you've identified, whether for this iteration or for the entire project, and figure out which tasks have no predecessors. And then you identify out of the, the remaining tasks uh, which ones are dependent only on previously identified tasks, and you capture that dependency, and you iterate that second step, until you have captured the dependencies of all of the tasks. Now, if you're doing, you're using something like an Agile, if you're on an Agile project and you're using like an Agile board, task board, um, you should be able to just kind of do this by inspection by looking at the tasks. Um, or if you're using a tool like Microsoft Project or Jira, you know, and you're dealing with a small set of tasks, you can probably do this with, uh, in an eyeball kind of way. On uh, medium to large projects, uh, it's better to use either sticky notes or index cards with tape uh, and a a whiteboard or a wall that you can uh, write on and and paste stuff up on. Um, I've seen this done in cases where you have like butcher paper hung up on walls, and that's used to kind of lay out a timeline and, and the dependencies between the tasks. And then ultimately that all gets captured into the project management tool. Uh, you need to understand the dependencies Now, you know theoretically in agile projects you're supposed to select user stories that are independent and that's fine there might not be dependencies between the user stories but there certainly can be dependencies like I can't run a test for this user story until I have this particular piece of hardware set up because this piece of hardware is necessary to run this test so Just, you know, keep that in mind. People will sometimes say, well, there aren't any dependencies in Agile because all the user stories are supposed to be independent. Well, that doesn't mean that the tasks that have to be carried out to um, uh, accomplish the user story, to implement the user story are are going to be independent. Now, here's something that uh, should be less of an issue on an Agile project but can be a fairly significant one on a sequential project is critical path. So once you get your, if, if you're doing a sequential project, once you get all your tasks into your project management tool um, with the dependencies, you want to look at your critical path uh, now, or critical paths. And the, a critical path is any sequence of dependent tasks where any delay of any task along that sequence would end up pushing out the project end date because there's a, you can trace backward from what it means for the project to be done through a path of dependencies along that chain right then hence critical path you can also get a, have near critical paths where um, one or two day slip might not hurt but a week is, is going to create a problem so you know you want to look for things like uh, you know uh, phase gates phase entry and exit criteria um, uh, issues associated with, uh, Um, how the tests are broken down into into groups like uh, sometimes people call test passes, a collection of tests that are going to be run against a given set of releases, how many releases are you going to get, how many test cycles are you going to get. Think about external dependencies as a test person you are pretty much downstream from everybody else and everything else on the project so you have to think about how something upstream could go wrong and, and affect you. Now again this is likely to be a bigger issue on a large sequential project than it would be on a, a smaller project where you've got a team of seven or eight people following an Agile lifecycle. Um, you're less likely to get caught up in this. But if you're dealing with big, complex projects following a uh, traditional iterative lifecycle or sequential lifecycle, then, then you know critical path issues can be a way that things, things get delayed. You also want to make sure that in your estimate you have taken into account resources, things like people, uh, test environments, and tools. Um, and there's a number of things to keep in mind here. Now, you know, the, the, the first thing, the first mistake not to make there, assuming two people can get the job done in half the time, that is the basis of Fred Brooks' title for his book, The Mythical Man Month. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't expect that you can just throw more people at the job because it's, it's brain work okay so you know you need to think about who's the right person to do the job you know what skills are required uh, if you're gonna try to use this as sort of an on-job training task that's fine but keep in mind that it's gonna take that person longer and they're gonna need to have someone they can go to and ask questions which means that that person that they're asking questions of will get less work done so that has to all be factored into the uh, uh, the equation now Your tools and environments, be careful not to overload those. Uh, If you overload them, um, you can end up uh, uh, having uh, problems with uh, false positives, uh, things that look like bugs but are actually just problems in your test environment. Um, You can end up having situations where you're blocked from running an automated test because you don't have enough tool licenses. Now, of course, if you're you're using open source or custom tools, you're not going to have a tool license issue. Uh, but, you know, it's something to consider. Also, remember that the environments and the tools will not set themselves up, and they will have problems, and they'll require support. So either you have to do that within your team, or you have to figure out some external resource like a network operations center or something like that that's going to do this for you. Um, And this is a mistake that's easy to make in in Agile. See, in, in Sequential projects, we are supposed to be thinking all the way ahead to the end of the project. In Agile, once you get out of release planning, it tends to be this sort of heads down, uh, you know, each iteration is its own thing. You can paint yourself into a corner as a tester really easily that way uh, and find, oh, you know, for this iteration that we're about to start, we need to have this test tool set up. But this test tool, you know, requires this particular piece of hardware and that piece of hardware costs $10,000 which needs, you know, uh, executive-level management approval or VP-level management approval, and that takes four weeks to get, uh, and our iteration is two weeks long. Uh, Whoops, right? So, you know, try to to think forward on these things and not get yourself into a trap. Something called rolling wave planning in Agile, which if you're not familiar with that, uh, I'd encourage you to uh, take a look at. So you don't find yourself in that in that kind of box. Okay, so metrics. Let's talk about metrics a little bit here. Um, the use of metrics. So, uh, particularly for predicting test execution time, metrics can be very helpful. But they really can be helpful for just about anything. Now, if you're on an, if you're working in an agile world, um, you'll probably already be familiar with one form of metrics-based estimation, which is velocity that I mentioned before. Excuse me, I had to get a drink of water there. Um, so velocity basically is, is. remember I, I said that uh, uh, earlier on that a team will have a characteristic um, uh, so with software process uh, capability. It's like you get a group of people together, they've got a process that they're following, they're developing software that has certain characteristics uh, from a quality point of view and also from a, a speed point of view. And that's what you're measuring with velocity. You're measuring the the characteristics uh, of that team. Um, in sequential lifecycle models, it's it's the same t- type of thing. You can be measuring, um, you know, average number of uh, requirements, elements per person month that get implemented, or function points per person month, those, those sort of things. Uh, So here what what I'm talking about is is something that can be particularly useful, which is the application of metrics to try to figure out how how long it's going to take to run your tests. Um, Now, the thing that's important here to keep in mind is that this is actually a two-part question. One, One part of the question is how long would it take to run every planned test once? Obviously, it can't take less time than that. But also, it's how long is it going to take for us to locate the important bugs, give the developers time to fix those bugs, and give us time to confirm those bugs as fixed. So we have to be able to estimate uh, a few things here. We have to be able to estimate how many tests we're going to need, the total amount of of, uh, effort that's associated with those those planned tests, Uh, how many person hours of tester time is going to be available uh, per week or per day, uh, and how much of that time will actually be spent testing as opposed to doing other things, like responding to emails and going to daily stand-up meetings and so forth. so through through those numbers, if you if you have those numbers, um, then uh, you know you can uh, you can estimate this is how long it would take to run all the planned tests once. So in agile, you'd be looking at, okay, you know, for story uh, user stories with this kind of, uh risk level, we usually create this number of tests, and each test typically takes this number of hours to run and so on and so forth. But that's just going to get you through the test once. So then the other thing you need to do is have some way of predicting the number of bugs that you're going to be dealing with. So um, <clears throat> let's look at these two parts of the problem here. Um, so uh, how long to run the tests? Uh, you really have to think about what is your what, what, how do you organize your tests? Like how much, what percentage is scripted versus what percentage is exploratory? Also think about your regression testing strategy. Are you running automated tests or are you running manual tests? If they're manual tests, you know, are, are you repeating them all the time? or you, Do you run them just once? When do you run the regression tests? Um, so if you can make this uh, kind of predictable in the sense of, you know, you you draw a picture. Go. This is what our what our test cycles look like. Um, and come up with that picture, then you can start kind of filling in the the blanks uh, in terms of how long it's going to take to uh, run the test. So if you get say you got something like this, this is this would be a sequential lifecycle model. You draw something uh, similar, but with a uh, more of a daily heartbeat for agile. So what we got here is when we're feature complete, we start system test because that's a sequential lifecycle model, the way it's going to work. your entry criteria so you start system test when you're feature complete. And so basically what I have is I have these one-week cycles. In each cycle, I get a new test release. Um, And in each uh, cycle, I'm basically going to plan on One day of confirmation testing, so 20% of my time confirming fixes for bugs. Three days of scheduled tests, uh, manual and automated, and one day of exploratory testing. Now, this might not be Monday, Tuesday through Thursday, Friday. I could organize it that way, but I could actually have it spread out, but basically it's uh, 20% confirmation test, 60% scheduled tests, and a 20% exploratory test, which is a, you know, reasonably good rule of thumb in my experience. Um, and uh, now I can go, okay, so th- this is what I'm going to do in terms of getting through my pre-designed tests. So i got three days, and let's say I've got six testers, so that's 18 uh, uh, person days. Um so 18-person uh, days, um, now how many hours is a person going to get in a day of testing? You know, typically it's not going to be eight or nine. Uh, maybe they get five. Okay, so I've got now five times 18, so that's uh, 90. i got 90-person uh, hours of testing that are going to get done in a given week. So if I know that I've got, um, say, uh, 45 tests, and um, each test uh, t- takes typically four hours to run, those being fairly good-sized tests. So now that's 180 hours of testing. So it's going to take me two weeks to get through those. See so how to follow the math there? And then I'm ready to start the next pass so I can go on to that next set of tests. And I'm ready to start the next pass. So now I don't know how many passes I'm going to need yet. I just know, okay, I'm going to have some number of these passes where I'm going through these tests. I don't know uh, how many that's going to be because I need to know the bugs. Before before we get to that, um, let's just point out that uh, in Agile, um, this is, of course, different because instead of, the testing happening at the end of the iteration, hopefully it's not, that is happening throughout the iteration. And so what you'd be be doing here would be looking at, okay, when do we think we're going to get the first thing and how long is it going to take to test that and then the next thing and how long will it take to test that. Uh, One of the things that can go wrong with Agile is when people don't break the user stories down into small enough pieces. Um, they end up delivering the code to the testers all at once at the end, and uh, testing becomes a big bottleneck. And then the testers get blamed. It's like, well, the testing is is a bottleneck um, and it's holding us up. Well, no, what's, what's holding the, the organization up is the fact that test execution doesn't start until the last three or four days of a two-week iteration. So you need to be careful that that's not happening because this, that's an example of what I was talking about before of upstream things uh, uh, colliding with your ability to test. So now going back to this issue of bugs, how long to get the bugs out? Well, basically what we need to do first is predict how many bugs there are going to be. Uh, now you need to have some sort of metric of size. Now. In Agile, you can use your velocity as a metric, as it's probably going to be uh, strongly correlated with the number of bugs that you're finding. Um, now, I say probably, you'd have to check test that out. But you know, if it's it, the the assumption that um, we can predict a number of bugs based on size is really based on a um, a uniform mistake rate. Uh, on the part of the programmers, which is, of course, not a valid assumption if you're going hour by hour, but it is a valid assumption if you're looking like over a period of weeks. So by uniform mistake rate, what I mean is that the developers will tend to make a certain number of mistakes in a given week, which is going to result in a certain number of bugs. And so if I know how much development work there is, some way of sizing, number of person hours, velocity, um, you know, what have you, uh, then I can say, okay, historically that we've had you know this number of bugs per story point or this number of bugs per developer day or something like that. And so now if I know how many developer days I've got, I should be able to predict it's going to be this number of bugs. Now in agile, if everything's under control, this should be you know pretty stable from one uh, iteration to the next. You should be finding pretty much the same number of bugs. and so it should be possible to, uh, predict okay you know that this is gonna be this number of bugs it takes us this long to get through them uh, therefore we need to allocate that much extra time for just bug fixing into our iterations now in sequential projects this is going to be different because you know you're you're not trying to produce a consistent amount of stuff it's it's varying so the number of bugs is going to be a function of the amount of size that was committed to at the beginning Um so you know you need to get that uh, get those numbers uh, ideally you've got three or four similar projects from the past that you can look at you've got a sizing metric you can then look at uh, uh, you know this is the number of bugs per uh, developer day and so this you know number of estimated developer days for this project therefore we predict this number of bugs now <laughs> here again it gets tricky too because I now I've predicted the number of bugs and I can mathematically say, okay, well, that means this amount of effort, but how, how long does it take? So, what you need is to go back and look at your open-closed charts. Now, if you're not familiar with the open-closed chart, uh, go out to the RBCS website, go to the um, uh, basic or uh, advanced libraries, and you can find some uh, uh, examples of... Um, spreadsheets out there that create open-closed charts for you. They're basically graphing the total number of bugs found versus the total number fixed. Now, the thing that's happening in this chart, though, is that this is not um, retrospective. It's prospective, by which I mean I've actually lo- looking at things like the closure period, average number of days from discovery to resolution of bugs, uh, looking at things like how many bugs tend to get fixed in each test release um, and, and so forth, I make some predictions about what the shape of this find curve and the shape of this fixed curve are going to be. The spreadsheet that was used to create this chart is another one of those things that you can download. So you can take a look at that. Um, that's going to allow you to predict uh, how long it's going to take to, um, to uh, get the bugs out and pay close attention to that closure period figure again if you're not familiar with what closure period is you download those those metrics spreadsheets off of my website you'll be able to, to find some examples of that um, uh, that that can be that can be quite a deal I was mean, just I'm working on an assessment report for a client right now and um, they uh, they thought they, they told me oh you know the testing is, is way too expensive and it takes way too long well, I get to looking at their numbers, and it turns out that actually it accounts for about 20% of their project budgets, which is, you know, pretty much in line with industry averages in their particular industry and what they're doing. They're, you know, adapting off-the-shelf software, customizing off-the-shelf software for in-house use. But, interestingly enough, on average, it accounts for about 30% of the project duration and like hmm what what's going on with that so I go look at the closure period and they had to see some of these things are just insane turnaround times like average average time to fix a bug of 21 days average time with some of the the bug fix closure periods being up in the hundred days <clears throat> so you know if you've got an issue with slow bug repair or if an issue with a lot of bugs failing the confirmation test and being reopened you know that's going to really slow you down so make sure you're aware of that because that's again upstream stuff coming down and hitting you on the head okay so um estimation is tricky um software estimation is notoriously tricky we are we are as a industry notoriously bad at it um, you know, what, one of the things that's happened, you know, with the creation of Agile life cycles, I think a lot of that is is in reaction to um, the, our, I guess, failure to apply project management best practices to estimation, um, failure to discipline ourselves in terms of expectations. Um, you know, I think Agile partly says, well, you know, if we force people to deal with small units of time they're not going to get overly ambitious and we can kind of limit that um, you know limit those problems uh, some of the advocates of agile say that it's actually impossible to do um, long-term pl- planning and estimation properly i don't believe that i think it's possible it's just hard uh, and the reason i say that is because i've done it before um, because you know I, i've been on projects where i didn't do good estimation and that created problems with my testing but i did uh, ultimately master some uh, good estimation techniques and have gotten to the point where, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good at it, even if we're talking about a relatively long project. Uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of, of good um, estimation uh, and project management best practices out there. This hopefully has given you some interest in, in exploring those further. Again, just to recap the main parts of the process, uh, asking asking experts and uh, the people who will do the work, uh, Delphic Oracle, planning poker, that kind of thing. Using historical metrics and industry averages to look at how long things will take and to uh, check your your estimates that, the, that the people came up with, um, whether that's uh, velocity in an uh, Agile world or you know number of bugs per uh, developer hour in a, a sequential world. And then finally, don't forget the negotiation piece. Negotiation is, is big. Um, you have to have common expectations and come to an agreement about uh, um, what the test basis is and how thoroughly it will be covered and uh, make sure that people understand that constraints on uh, schedule um, and uh, budget and features uh, translate into constraints on quality as well. All right, I will put the advertisement up and start uh, answering questions as soon as I blow my nose. Question from Patricia here, who says, Would you repeat the percentage breakdown for the confirmation testing, scheduled testing, and exploratory testing on slide 12? Sure. Happy to, Patricia. Um, You're referring to this guy here. Um, So, basically, uh, 20% of the the test time on uh, confirmation testing in a week, 60% scheduled manual and automated testing, 20% exploratory testing. Now, is this appropriate in in your particular organization? I don't know. Um, it, It might be if you're dealing with a lot of bugs. Um, that your confirmation test time is going to be higher than that. Or you're not dealing with many bugs, so your confirmation test time would be less than that, which would be good assuming that the reason that you're not doing confirmation testing of bugs is because you're not finding a lot of bugs. If the reason that you're not doing a lot of confirmation testing is because the bugs are just languishing in the backlog there, that's not that's not good because that basically means you've got a lot of technical debt that's accumulating and this is going to have to be paid for someday. Um can you expand the amount of scheduled testing done um, by using automation? Sure, you can because basically the amount of effort would say the same at the amount of testing that would be done would be higher. So I'm talking about 60% of the effort is being spent on scheduled tests. But if you have a very high percentage of tests that are automated, that could be a whole lot of automated testing happening. And what might even happen there, what can happen in, in really well-functioning, mature, agile implementations where they do have a high percentage of automated tests is they see the effort associated with scheduled tests go down and the extra effort associated with exploratory testing go up because the tests that can be pre-written end up getting automated. And so they're just being run in an automated fashion. Now, this is not something, you know, of our clients that are doing agile, most of them are not there. So don't say, oh, we're doing agile, so therefore that means that we we can spend a lot more time on exploratory testing and less time on scripted tests. No, not until not you have to get there. You can't just go, oh, well, we should be there. Yeah, well, maybe you should be, but you know you're probably not. So um, be be beware of that. Oops. Well, that's that's frustrating. I don't know why I did that. Sorry, let me fix that. Um, Decided to go out of presentation mode. Now it's back in presentation mode, and hopefully you're all uh, seeing the right thing here. Let me just verify that you're seeing. Yep, you are. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Now, I got a question from um, uh, Steve who says, due to siloed expertise within our Agile team, our planning poker sessions often have many abstentions. <laughs> Do we force participation even when the participant doesn't understand the impact? If we don't, we end up having two people representing the team of 10. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there's very little point in having somebody give an estimate that they don't know. Um you know, I mean, except as as like a carnival game, right? Like the old thing about how many peanuts are in this jar. Have you ever done that at like a state fair or something like that, or you know, rodeo or something? is usually somebody's gonna have a jar of peanuts or something, a jar of marbles, and you know, how many marbles are in there? I mean, you know, you don't know. <laughs> I mean, you, you could, I guess, sit back with a calculator and try to calculate. Well, it's a volume of the typical peanut, and how what you know what's the volume of this? And that? but. You know, most of the time it's just going to be like people going, ah, I'm going to guess this. Uh, that doesn't, <laughs> that's, that's a funny game, but it doesn't add a whole lot of insight, right? So basically, if you force people um, to participate in the uh, planning poker sessions, you're just injecting noise into your estimate, which is—is is not is by no means good. Now I think that the that the abstentions can the abstainers can participate in the discussion uh, about the estimate, um, and and that could add value, and certainly they could learn from that. But I think ultimately, Steve, you you put your finger on the problem, which is the siloed expertise. Um, you know, it, now I'm all for specialization. Uh, I, you know, so one of the the great myths uh, that floats around in the Agile universe uh, that was put there um, by um, some of the founding fathers of Scrum is that anybody can do anything. You know, one day you can design, be a designer, and the next day you can be a programmer, and the next day you can be a tester, um, which is, is, you know, not basically that's saying you don't require any particular expertise or knowledge to do those things, which is, you know, of course, untrue. Um, but, you know, you can go too far on that specialization and get to the siloing problem. So what I would suggest is um, you, you try to do some cross-training and get some, get some skills growth uh, across your team so that you get away from the siloing. But, again, forcing participation, I, I would say, no, that doesn't make any sense because, as I say, that's just injecting noise into your estimate. Uh, Donald says can you explain more about overloading tools sure um, so um, basically if you got if you've got a commercial tool and and you have a certain number of licenses overloading tools would be trying to have too many people on based on the number of licenses that would be the tool would be overloaded and in that case it would it would not allow you to um, Um, use the tool, right? Um, You know, you get some sort of error message and it would say, "Ah, sorry, can't do it. Um, So that would be an example. Now, another another thing that can happen is not exactly overloading, but it's kind of related, uh, which is where you try to run automated tests in a single environment where there's a shared data store. Um, and they end up kind of, the tests end up scribbling on each other's data and you get a bunch of false positives. I, you could say, well, that's overloading the environment, not overloading the tools, well, I suppose. It's overloading something. Uh, so you just, you have to be careful when you're talking about running automated tests that you're not going to have situations where you run out of licenses or run out of some sort of resource, um, you know, the tool basically starts screwing up because of the way you're using it. I saw an interesting example of that once where a set of performance tests appeared to pass. um, But when we looked more closely, we realized that we were running the load generator on a system that was underpowered Well, had insufficient CPU and memory uh, resource to create the number of virtual users that we wanted to create. So the response time appeared to be good at the at the target number of users but I mean what was actually happening is that we weren't getting to the target number of users. So that's that's another kind of related thing. So you just you have to be careful when you're doing any sort of automated testing. Uh, Ian says from your experience any ideal time for agile sprints in weeks? I uh, I don't you know I've I've seen people do one week. I've seen people do four weeks. To me, um, you know, uh, one week seems awfully short. Um, If you can make it work, you know, good for you. Two weeks, you know, that seems like a bottom end of reasonable. Um, But, you know, we've got clients now that are totally kind of breaking out of that. Whole iteration mode and getting into things like Kanban, and um, just saying, you know, we're not going to worry about sprints per se. You know, everything is just kind of going to move on its own schedule, and, and there won't it won't be time box. So, I don't, you know, if 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 you got a particular iteration speed and it works for you, both from a testing and development point of view, I'd say that's the right thing to do. Mark says, is confirmation testing also meant to include regression testing, and are there assumptions that can be made about regression effort and estimation? Um, So, no, confirmation testing is confirming that a, a bug fix does actually fix the bug. So, at the very least, it should include rerunning the steps to reproduce the bug that were documented in the bug report. It might also include rerunning the tests that failed because of the bug, check to see if those problems are now fixed and if those tests now pass but neither of those activities to me would qualify as regression testing uh, regression testing is running uh, tests of things that weren't changed uh, to make sure that they weren't broken now of course that the holy grail here the the uh, the ideal objective would be to um, have all those tests automated but that's uh, seldom the case uh, that's seldom the case that you're going to get to 100% automation. So, uh, what you're going to need to do from a regression effort and estimation perspective is look at, you know, how much how much of your regression testing is automated, and how long does that take to run? Uh, hopefully, not very long, and hopefully, you know, you spend very little time of that dealing with with false positives. Make sure you look at that. If you're if you're spending a lot of time going through in analyzing your automated test results and updating the tests because you're getting a lot of false positives, you're not doing it right. Your 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 tests are not uh your tests have a maintainability problem. Um so you know, part of it the, so then part of the equation here with the regression effort and estimation has to do with uh you know, your automated tests. The other has to do with the manual tests. Now with the manual tests um, what you have to do is figure out how you are going to select the test that you're going to run. Because, um, you know, you're, not, you're probably not going to rerun all of them. You might be able to do that at first when your system is relatively small and simple, if you're dealing with, uh, um, you know, some kind of iterative or incremental development. But eventually, you know, the size and scope of, of the system is going to, to overwhelm you. So, you need to have some sort of method of picking uh, what you're going to test. Now, uh, you can use your risk analysis, excuse me, to try to figure out the highest risk areas and, um, you know, by all means try to automate those because the high risk areas are the ones that you're going to want to rerun a lot, right? Um, if you, uh, for whatever reason, if you can't, you um, Uh, Automate all of those, and I guess you're going to have to run those manually. And you also need to be able to do some sort of impact analysis to look at the things that have been affected or could have been affected by the change that was made. Those you'll have to run, and, you know, a a properly managed repository of manual tests that you can use to go back and say, ah, okay, for these, these requirements have been changed or affected by the change, and we use our traceability to go look at the tests that relate to those requirements, those are the tests that we need to run based on this change, right? That that part of the process should be pretty straightforward and you want to design your uh, test repository, uh, your traceability, and your impact analysis such that the the process of selecting the manual tests to run uh, is pretty straightforward, at least selecting the manual tests that you should run. And then at that point, You should have some historical data on how long these manual tests take to run. You know how many there are. So that's going to tell you, okay, this is the number of person hours of regression testing we need to to run. Now, then then you're back to negotiation because, uh, you know, people are going to have to decide, well, if the total amount of testing to test the new features and to regression test the things that were not changed exceeds the amount of testing that we're willing to invest, where are we going to cut? going to cut regression testing? Or are we going to cut um, scheduled testing? Or are we going to cut both equally, one more than another? You know, so the, again, negotiation rears its ugly head. Um, uh, Zachariah asks, I hope there is Zacharia. I hope I'm getting that name right. Um Which metrics do you suggest that we record during testing that can be used for test estimation for subsequent projects and iterations? Huge sneeze there. Um, Well, you want to look at bugs, um, the number of bugs found. You want to look at um, uh, estimated hours and actual hours for your Various tasks, especially your test execution, you want to make sure that you know, you want to know that anytime you run a test, you want to record how long it took to run the test, If assuming it was a manual test. Um, so, yeah, those those kinds of things, the number of developer hours that were uh, spent, uh, the number of hours that people actually spend uh, on task. So, like, during test execution, how much time do they actually spend running tests as opposed to doing things like sending emails and doing confirmation tests and so forth. And you have to look at, at those kind of things. Um, the uh, closure period, how long it takes for bugs to get uh, fixed uh, and how stable that is over time. Is its is it predictable? Is it unpredictable? That has a lot of implications. Um the point at which your bug backlog starts to impose inefficiencies. So uh, this could be a complex analysis to do, but if you can looking at um, correlation between the bug backlog and your, your bug duplication rate and your false positive rate, there probably will be one. Um, If you, if you can't do that, just you, you should just look for situations where your bug backlog exceeded 50 on a sequential lifecycle project on an agile project it, you know the number should be much lower um, Because bug backlog is going to lead to a lot of duplication and a lot of false positives so you want to you want to look at backlog so those are some things that I would start by keeping track of a uh, longtime listener to yen says four week uh, iterations seem to work well at my organization so good yeah so and if it works I'd say stick with it Uh, Ivana says, do you know if somewhere is available any kind of estimation tool that is reusable, maybe an Excel sheet with parameters and formulas? Well, the, um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff out on the RBCS website. If you go out to the basic library and to the advanced library and you look under the heading test estimate test estimation, there are a bunch of spreadsheets that you are certainly welcome to download and use. They're fairly crude, uh, but... You know they've worked for me on a number of projects. Um, <clears throat> there are tools uh, for estimation, um, but they're you know they're t- they tend to be expensive, <laughs> and uh, you know that might not be something that you want to you want to get into. Uh, there are also books out there that have industry numbers in them, um, uh, specifically Capers Jones's books like Estimating Software Costs and Economics of Software Quality. So, you know, I'd encourage you to uh, take a look at those, too, because those can uh, give you some uh, numbers that will help you, uh, um, you know, benchmark where, where you are against uh, industry averages. Um, uh, Fani asks, basically, I think just what, Ask what I just said. Do you have sample spreadsheets that can be used effectively for estimation on your website, or is that something that you can send to me? Uh, Yeah, you can download this stuff off the website. Please don't send requests to me or to Info uh, asking us to find for you and email to you stuff that I have referenced off of our website. Uh, This is, uh, you know, a free webinar service. We're happy to offer a free webinar service, but we're not going to Google that for you. Okay, so yeah, the website's a little clunky. I apologize for that, but it's you know you should be able to find those um, uh, the spreadsheets by um, just going to the basic library or the advanced library. That's the resources tab, basic, advanced libraries, and then find the test estimation section in each of those pages, and voila, tons of free spreadsheets. Uh, now, I I want to be clear there's there's nothing magical about those spreadsheets right that stuff that i've put together over years um you know you're going to need to fine tune it you're going to need to adjust it okay but it can it be a good starting point for you sure absolutely can it give you some food for thought yep absolutely does it cost anything nope it's free um Let's see, on the whole how is the audio quality, I think people were kind of all over the place on this. And Jean said that she had problems with it. Yuri said it was fine. Saraswathi said that it kind of came and went, sometimes okay, sometimes not okay. Craig said, oh, sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes it has ringing. Shauna says audio is great. Kristen says it's fine. Zechariah said, I can, I can hear clearly. Rex Parsons says, "Good for me." Um, so, yeah, I would say um, if you were having problems with your audio, it was probably a, a connection speed issue at your end. Um, so, uh, you know, look at look into that. Um, it, you know, if you're when you go out and you like watch uh, videos from YouTube and other kinds of stuff, do you notice that you've got a lot of buffering happening? Um, you know, if you do. Then um, that that is going to mean that you've got you know a connection speed issue. If sometimes your connection's fast and sometimes it's slow, which will happen with uh, you know Wi-Fi or with uh, busy um, network connections, that will also result in this. So you know uh, there's, there's very little I can do on that to make to improve the audio quality. Uh, you know just try to improve the, your connection speed. You can also you can always come back and listen to the recorded version, which if if I've got a good connection, that will be. Clear. Deepak, Dirk, Anna, and Ian all say that the audio quality is great, um, as does Rolf. So, Miriam says, thank you for the great and informative training. Uh, Muhammad says, thanks for the great session. Well, thank you to you both for attending. Uh, I'm glad it was uh, useful to you. Um, appreciate all of you uh, who, who did come out for this uh, best of uh, presentation, even though this is one that we've done before, it's uh, actually quite different. So if you have colleagues who said, "Oh, man, I'm not going to attend that one on test estimation because I've heard it before. Um, uh, you might say, "Hey, you know, you might want to listen to the recorded version because this is pretty different. I had a lot of information on agile in here. So then um, Patricia says agree. Thank you for thank you for the informative session. Preethi too says very informative. Thank you. Audio quality was great. Ivana, thanks for the webinar. Great as always. Good. Um, well, thank you for the kind words. I'm glad that uh, we had much fewer technical issues this time than we did last month. Uh, so let me just close the session down a little bit more about the resources. You know you know about the free webinars, uh, so you visit our website to sign up. Of course, we can do these for you for a fee if you want, uh, for your company only, so you can send an uh, email info at rbcs-us.com our regular free newsletter also sign up at rbcs-us.com we uh, give um, discounts Uh, and by the way we are running a huge discount right now through the end of day tomorrow uh, 20% off everything absolutely everything in there so if you didn't get that email you send an email to info at rbcs-us.com and ask for the information about the 20% discount. So that's the kind of thing that happens from time to time. We get these flash sales. Um, you also get a regular newsletter that will include a featured article on our testing and quality and news about what we're up to. We're on Twitter, uh, at RBCS, uh, and uh, at Like a Test Dog, as you see there. Like a Test Dog is the personal one, so if you don't if all you want to hear about is testing, do the RBCS one if you want to hear me bloviate about the 2016 election. (laughs) You can get more of that from like a text doc. We're on Facebook, RBCS-INC. Don't forget to check your email over the next couple days because you could be the lucky winner uh, of the uh, free e-learning course. There's uh, one winner uh, each month. Uh, Actually, this month there were two because we had encore presentation, the technical problems last month. So there'll be another winner uh, drawn based on today's attendees um, and don't forget the digital library. So again, resources tab, navigate to the digital library. These webinars are recorded and posted out there within a few days of being done. Uh, we also t- post uh, podcasts as RSS feeds of them. There are videos out there. Uh, we're on iTunes store if you want to get a podcast there. We've got the RBCS channel on YouTube with these webinars are also posted. so. We're uh, we're all over the Internet like a bad rash, as the saying goes. We offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not-just-for-profit company. This concludes the webinar. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. Have a great uh, holiday and see you next year.